When I was growing up, my dad said I was a donkey because I would just keep running into the wall rather than looking for a way around it. I work with entrepreneurs who are the clever types who are constantly looking and finding shortcuts and ways around things. But most entrepreneurs, there's an element of, hey, I'm willing to grind because it's not easy. It's actually more interesting. You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. A podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. My guest today is Jonathan Heiliger. He's a general partner at Vertex Ventures based out of Palo Alto. We're going to talk about his investments in startups, what he looks for in entrepreneurs, what excites him, and why does he say no sometimes. Jonathan, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us about yourself, starting with your journey into venture capital. My personal journey into venture capital was long and twisted. I grew up in the Bay Area. I almost dropped out of high school, didn't make it into college, but I was able to start a company. And prior to just doing that, um, I actually worked on commercializing the internet at Stanford. And I only wanted to go to Stanford because why not? But I didn't get in despite working on commercializing the internet there. I ended up starting a web hosting company when I was 19, a couple of years later. And I met Mike Moritz. This was a very long time ago when we were very young. He was our first investor in our company. And that company was called ISI at the time and grew up to bigger and better things in the hosting world, ultimately acquired by Global Crossing, where I was CTO and ran the network and did a bunch of other things, including scouting for startups that would allow us to differentiate our product portfolio relative to our competitors at the time, like Sprint and Verizon and level three. That led me to actually starting a corporate venture fund for Global Crossing in 1999, which was either a great time or a terrible time to be an investor. For us, it worked out pretty well. We returned great multiple on our capital. But I also discovered at the ripe old age of 22 or 23 that I wasn't ready to have two breakfasts, two lunches, two dinners a day and just chase around other VCs. I wanted to still be an entrepreneur. So I quit and joined a company called LoudCloud. At its inception, it's where I met one of my partners at Vertex in Sikri and obviously worked with Ben and Mark for many years and fell in love with being an entrepreneur again. I sort of you know, experienced that yo-yo a few more times working at places like Walmart and scaling their infrastructure, going back then to Sequoia Capital and and hanging out and working with pretty much every partner there, deals and investments and diligence and different things, but was lured back to the operating side once again to Facebook, joined there in 2007 and worked for Mark until 2012 when there was about a billion people on the site building and scaling their infrastructure team. It was at that point that I decided I was firmly committed to helping and mentoring and guiding and just sharing the lessons learned and the bumps and bruises I had accumulated with founders and with young companies. When I left Facebook, I spent a bunch of time interviewing at venture funds, which is probably worth a podcast into itself because it's a long and arduous process where you generally have the same conversation over and over again because most venture funds are not comprised of operators. And so they don't tend to coordinate very well. I ended up joining a fund, was there for a short period of time, about two, three years before the fund ended up not continuing. My pendulum swung the other direction again and wanted to be an entrepreneur and got together with Insigri, the co-founder of LoudCloud, which became Opsware. He and I decided that we wanted to work together and start a venture fund together. That's what led us to create Vertex in the US. Vertex is a network of funds. We share the brand Vertex and we share an anchor investor in Tomasek. But all of the different vertices, we have cousins in Israel and China and South Asia, are run and managed separately. That's what we did six years ago now and have decided to be focused and concentrated investors, which unfortunately means we say no to a lot of things. 
because we want to do a few things and we want to be sort of meaningful and engaged advisors and helpers for those founders rather than making lots and lots of investments. It's not to say that one strategy is better than the other. It's just our particular strategy. At the end of the day, venture funds are comprised of people mostly making human decisions, not data-driven decisions, especially at the early stages of investing. This is fascinating. I want to talk about how you make decisions, how you use data today, but there's a lot to unpack here. I see that you were one of the original nerds of Silicon Valley, tried to commercialize internet, and you jumped on both sides, on the entrepreneurship side and on the investment side a few times. You've seen a ton of changes happen over the past couple of decades since the mid-90s in the Silicon Valley. How is the startup ecosystem different today compared to how it was when you were starting companies? Oh, goodness. Wildly different, Gopi. Starting at high level, the earth is flat in startup land. Most founders and technologists, not all, and one thing we should talk about is people who've been inside of Silicon Valley institutions versus not been inside of Silicon Valley institutions. And I use the word Silicon Valley there to really represent tech institutions, regardless of where they are. But most founders tend to be one or two hops away from other technologists and people that want to brainstorm entrepreneurial ideas and take that kind of risk. And many decades ago, before I had as much gray hair as I have now, that wasn't the case. You would raise five or $10 million, that was your series A, and you would immediately spend half of that budget on buying server hardware and infrastructure and data centers and all that type of thing. And as we all know, the cloud has forever changed that and turned that into cents and dollars to get up and going. Uh, of course, it gets more expensive once you have millions of users, but at least to start things off, you don't need millions of dollars to build a website anymore. The other big change from a technical standpoint is that open source software has really blossomed. When we started LoudCloud, open source was in its infancy. Linux was really the only sort of dominant and scale project, and it was competing against Sun Solaris and IBM's AIX operating system. But you couldn't build your entire application stack using open source at the time. Today, you can, and you can either use it for free, you do all the work, or you can pay for it, as I said, sort of cents and dollars, either from cloud providers or from lots of other third-party infrastructure people. And the last piece is access to capital has got significantly greater. The number of dollars in private equity and venture capital has risen dramatically. And there's you know, lots of good statistics there from single-digit billions to hundreds of billions of dollars in the last 20 years. And I think there's good reason for it. It's that technology has been the single largest contributor to GDP growth in the US and possibly in the world over that same period of time. And I do think that technology has delivered a lot of very positive returns, both financially and socially on the world, and will continue to do so. Access to capital, open source software, and the cost of starting a company going down, those are all strong positive trends that has fueled entrepreneurship. I've been in Silicon Valley for 20 plus years. I feel like the community was much more cohesive. It was a lot easier to reach out to Ben Horowitz of the world or Steve Jobs of the world. If you really wanted to get to them, there was a way to get to them. But today, I think the community has become much more siloed, much harder to get to more prominent people for getting a job to work in those organizations. But even getting a meeting with those people has become quite difficult. Maybe that's the sign of maturity where the ecosystem is much stronger and there are a lot more people. But I do miss those good days when it was easy to get to anybody. It was a casual conversation on University Avenue. I, I agree that the access to people has changed. But by and large, at least the people that I interact with, they're always leaving the 
door open or they're leaving time on their calendar to have free forum conversations with people that don't come from a qualified intro and so forth. That sort of openness of Silicon Valley still exists. Is that what you're referring to or accessibility of people? It's the sheer volume of people. It's really hard to find a connection that easily gets us to the people we want to. Mm. It becomes much more difficult because the network is much broader and wider. But that culture of supporting people, keeping the door open is still there. And I think that's part of the magic of Silicon Valley. You mentioned that you don't like to do two lunches, two breakfasts and two dinners, but you are in the business back in venture capital doing those things. Why is venture capital interesting to you? Why do you like this job? I'm sure there's a good multi-layer chocolate cake waiting for us at the answer to that question, Gobi. Um, you know, Let's devour. Uh, I, I do. Lo- I have spent the last two weeks eating my way through stacks and stacks of pastries. It's top of mind for me. I do think that one of the great things about venture capital is it's a little bit like joining an early stage startup, but rather than doing it serially, you're doing several in parallel with some key differences. When I was an operator. I could join one company and work at one company at a time, but obviously had friends who asked for help or advice, or I asked them for their help and their advice. So I would reserve time for those conversations. Now as a VC, I see my job and I see the role of great investing partners versus investing investors. That's one of the skills and traits that we bring to work with founders and entrepreneurs. Our job is to look out horizontally at all the things that are happening in the market and the landscape and bring back data and perspective to the founder or founders who's running her business and has to be focused on just running and scaling her business. To me, that's one of the funnest things. It means that you have to constantly be learning. It means that you get to help people and really help people think through meaningful problems about their business. Maybe there's a very limited set of people they can talk to about them, whether it's their spouse or their co-founder or something like that. But oftentimes there's really thorny human issues or strategic issues. And I spend a lot of my time as just that sounding board for the founder. And it's not about coming up with the right answer, but in turn, asking different questions and then being able to connect that founder to other smarter, actually talented people, not VCs like me, in helping him or her resolve whatever the strategic questions are or product questions are that they're wrestling with. Yeah, there's the operator side of you that really wants to build things and the desire for you to work on multiple projects at the same time. You're marrying the two of those. This role as a VC allows you to work with some fabulous founders while you can build and at the same time, you can support these founders, create that vision. That's really the hope. And I've been doing this now since about 2013, which means I'm sort of in the awkward teenage phase of my career where we've made a handful of investments. The good news is the ones that don't work tend to show themselves earlier than the ones that work because the ones that work keep working and keep growing. I look at my peers and our investors and have to report back to them because ultimately we're accountable to the people who invest in our fund, the entrepreneurs who backed us and you know other families and pensions and folks like that. We have our own set of reporting and accountability to do as well and sort of leads back to the people we back and how we help them. Ultimately, the point I was going to make a second ago, which was more about the projects that don't work. And just because they don't work doesn't mean that the founders weren't good people or they didn't give it all they could may have meant that they were in a bad market or that the market changed out from underneath them and collectively we all missed something and screwed something up. I still talk to those founders and I guess maybe I'm more impressed that they still talk to me. I want to talk about founders, but I have one last question about your view on the technology trends. It made sense for founders to be in Silicon Valley in the 90s and early 2000s. This was the center of universe for innovation. The technology revolution essentially started here. But is that still relevant now? Is Silicon Valley still the center of 
universe for technology innovation. Do entrepreneurs need to be here? What is your advice? I don't think that entrepreneurs need to be here. I don't think they need to be rooted in Silicon Valley. I do think they need to have a foot in Silicon Valley, depending on the, the sort of type of business they're in, for a couple of reasons. One, there remains incredible serendipity, whether you're on University Avenue or on South Park or Sand Hill Road at the Rosewood in bumping into and meeting people who are potential recruits and employees, investors, partners, etc. That, I think, ecosystem just doesn't exist anywhere else in the world as richly as it does in Silicon Valley. For companies, for example, there's more SaaS businesses that I can count that don't need to necessarily have a presence or have the Silicon Valley DNA. More importantly, if you're starting a Netflix clone for Estonia, you probably don't need to be in Silicon Valley. You actually need to be in your local market and understand the constituency and the users in, in those local markets. Or if you're starting a ride-sharing company, again, you don't need Silicon Valley expertise or DNA or partnerships, at least not at day zero and day one. But where it does matter is if you're building B2B software, if you're building enterprise software, there are not just the deepest well of experienced people, by people, I mean, engineers and product thinkers and marketers but also salespeople that are either based in Silicon Valley or whose calling card is Silicon Valley. They may be in Texas or Iowa or Colorado because salespeople and go-to-market people tend to be based everywhere. But the leadership staff and stack tends to be based in Silicon Valley, just rooted in that network. Looking back at my own career and the different arcs that it has had, a lot of it was based in Silicon Valley. My first company was in Sunnyvale. You know, We were predominantly based there and then opened presence on the East Coast. One of the most challenging things, it doesn't matter where you are or what business you're in or starting a company, is getting and keeping people on the same page. And some of the most prescient advice I got from Mike Moritz is there's no better way to get people to communicate than when you can get everyone in the same room. And when you have that shared context and shared neighborhood of kind of how to process and analyze problems. Other examples of that, LoudCloud and Offsware, as we were growing and building that company from zero to 600 employees, we had pretty much everyone in Sunnyvale for quite a while, except for the sales team that was distributed. And that was the result of working with folks like Andy Ratcliffe and Bill Campbell, who were incredible company builders, but also just incredible humans. And realizing that as great as even this podcast is and being able to talk to you today and for people that are going to listen to it tomorrow and well into the future, it's not the same as sitting down and having a cup of coffee or whiskey and working out problems in real time with people. So the short answer is no, you don't have to be in Silicon Valley, but I do think that starting a company wherever it is, having people together as much as possible is the greatest accelerant to getting that company up and going. Yeah, I see your answer started with a no and then landed in a yes. <laughs> uh, I see why, because 30% of my portfolio, these startups are located in Silicon Valley. I expected way more. I expected 70 or 80% of these companies will be in Silicon Valley and I would invest here locally. But great entrepreneurs exist anywhere. It's our job as investors to go find them and support them and give them the best space to build great businesses. If they can do it in their hometown, great. That's even better. But yeah, I still feel like Silicon Valley is the strongest glue. I hope there are other hubs that will grow, but if you got to pick one hub, it is Silicon Valley. I would agree. And like you said, 30% of your founders are in Silicon Valley. In the case of Vertex and Vertex US, about half of our first fund, which we started in 2015, came from outside of Silicon Valley. That mm. could be as far away as the Ukraine or Korea or India or 
Boston. In Fund 2, 75% of the companies were started outside of Silicon Valley. And percentages, they are what they are, 50% and 75%. We run a very concentrated portfolio. Both of those funds have 20 companies. So that corresponds to 10 companies and 15 companies respectively. Um, so relatively small numbers on an absolute basis. But we didn't intentionally seek out founders who were outside of Silicon Valley. These were people who had started their business somewhere and decided to come to Silicon Valley, or in some cases, the East Coast, to set up headquarters and business operations. That's when we happened to either intersect with them either just before they made that move and they were in their home market and home country, or just after they made that move because they decided on their own to come to, quote, Silicon Valley. Now, you mentioned uh, concentrated portfolio, and I want to now talk about startups. What does that mean? What does it mean for entrepreneurs when they work with a VC that has a concentrated portfolio? You could feel free to give examples of uh, startups. Sure. What founders should expect when they work with investors and partners who run a concentrated portfolio is hopefully they get people who are accessible and partners who are accessible. We have lots of friends who are on 20, 25 boards. That's a lot of time spent in board meetings. Personally, I don't find board meetings super productive. I find the Sunday night text threads or Tuesday afternoon phone calls much more productive than the like organized two or three hour sessions. And those sessions can extend to four hours as the company gets close to going public or goes public. Have been involved in a handful of those situations. But in terms of the engaged investor, founders and investors are getting into a relationship. It is a true partnership. It's a marriage. And it's one that is actually very difficult to break. I could divorce my wife faster than I could get off of boards and separate from companies. A lot of founders don't appreciate that when they're hiring an investor or selecting an investor, that it's a long-term relationship and it's one that is very difficult to separate. You're giving up stock and some amount of control in your company. Some founders are very savvy, probably most famously folks like Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and Travis Kalanick at Uber retained control of their companies through thick and thin. But most founders don't have that luxury because they're not being pursued by as many investors, which is fundamentally the leverage determining factor there. In terms of working with Vertex, the reason we like to be focused and have our focused portfolio is, as I said, to be engaged, which means that the relationships that I have in enterprise buyers and people who will evaluate and purchase and ultimately help these businesses grow, I can't send them 100 things and expect them to look at all 100 and say, yeah, I'm interested in all of this. But when I send them two or three things, the feedback I get is, hey, Jonathan, this either isn't a fit right now and here's why, or it is, and we really appreciate you being a tastemaker for us. And so that taste-making ability with enterprise buyers is something that is very difficult to replicate and scale. We've seen other firms do this and make attempts at programs to run EBCs and all these things. And the feedback we've heard from founders is that it's great, almost content marketing and branding, but it's actually has not been meaningful for them in terms of revenue generation, where things like targeted intros and knowing who the buyer is at the right point in time and why the product that the founder is building matches up with the problem the buyer has, that's really where there's value that gets created. So being able to do those types of things is something that I enjoy and something that we enjoy as a team and as a firm. And that's what's allowed us to be successful with our relative small portfolio of companies and founders. You're very articulate in describing how you approach this journey with an entrepreneur at Vertex Ventures. These are long-term relationships. They always start with the first meeting where you're strangers. I really like venture capital for this reason. Very quickly, these relationships turn into a long-term relationship that lasts for a lifetime. But in that first meeting, what happens? 
What are you looking for when you meet an entrepreneur for the first time? What yeah, questions do you great, ask? Them? Great question. One of the things I really like about venture is that we do get to pick who we work with. That's not said arrogantly. That's meant in the sense of I get to pick that you and I get to work together and we get to talk today. You get to interview me and we're both opting into doing this. Few things that we really look for in terms of founder archetypes. It starts with visionary builders, people who are doers, who have shown that they can iterate and execute their way into markets. Oftentimes, this is because they've experienced a problem firsthand and they got really frustrated that they experienced this problem and kept experiencing it. So they had to leave their job and start a company because they wanted to solve it. For example, that's what led us to start Perimeter X with Omri, Edo, and Ophir, which is a security company. It was the first investment when we started Vertex. Or when we met Edith and John, the founders of LaunchDarkly, LaunchDarkly is a feature management platform and allows developers to ship code more confidently and faster. It was something that our infrastructure team at Facebook built to allow Facebook to scale more rapidly. So, you know, I met Edith, met John, like, oh, know this problem well. I'll be honest, at first when I met them and talked to them, I wasn't sure that that was a real company. I thought that that was just like a side feature. By the way, I thought the same thing when I heard about Splunk for the first time. And well, geez, I was $20 billion wrong on that one. Thankfully, we were able to convince Edith and John to work with us at LaunchDarkly. We're proud investors there. We also like founders who are high integrity, who are super stubborn, and who enjoy going against the herd and actually think that that's fun. I think that being a founder takes tremendous grit and a willingness to challenge people who say you can't do something and it can't be done that way. When I met Mahmood, who's the founder of VGS, Very Good Security, that was exactly his mentality. We invested five or six years ago, and that's still his mentality today. He wants to not just solve a privacy problem and a data security problem with Very Good Security, but actually solve transaction and financial crime problems using security and privacy and tie those things together. The last two things that I think are tremendously important is that people have to be infectious. They have to be able to sell their stock whether it's to an employee or to an investor. There's some nuances and differences there. But it also comes from people who are empathetic and can rally their troops and know that they're going to have to weather storms together with the people they hire. Because not every company is up and to the right. In fact, yet to meet any company that has ever been up and to the right consistently. You know, I've, I've sort of seen this play out time and time again. Real world example there is I was partners with Rick Fulop at Northbridge a long time ago. He left the firm and started Desktop Metal, where we're investors, 3D metal printing company. Company went public last year via SPAC. And Rick is still positive and optimistic and is able to imbue that optimism in everyone in his company so that they don't lose faith and hope of their mission despite what the public markets may or may not be valuing the company at today. The last thing is really just diversity and diverse abilities. It's great to have a team of people who all come out of one set of shared experiences, but that tends to mean that there's actually more blind spots in those teams than teams with that have diverse backgrounds and diverse abilities, whether that's geographic diversity or company backgrounds or upbringing and education backgrounds. All of those things, I think, you know, contribute to building stronger, bigger, better vision for a company rather than, hey, we're four people that have all worked together for two decades and we're just going to go and do this thing because we had this problem. I want to see that. That might be the kernel, but I want to then see how that kernel can develop and change and take new forms by adding thoughts and ideas from outside of that nucleus. You've clearly outlined the list of characteristics that you appreciate and you like to see in entrepreneurs. One specific thing that I'm really curious to understand a little more is you mentioned super stubborn. I understand founders need to be optimistic, but I'm curious to understand why is that important for you and how stubborn can they be? 
Well, I'm a pretty stubborn person. So, <laughs> you know, I think I need to work with other stubborn people probably. When I was growing up, my dad said I was a donkey because I would just keep running into the wall rather than looking for a way around it. And I work with entrepreneurs who are the clever types who are constantly sort of looking and finding shortcuts and ways around things. But most entrepreneurs, I think, are there's an element of, hey, I'm willing to grind because it's not easy. It's actually more interesting. That's why I admire that trait and respect that trait a whole lot more than someone who's like, hey, I tried this thing and it worked and I captured lightning. And then that then gave them the confidence to try two more things and two more things. I'm not sure that person learns about the why as much as the person who's grinding away at whether it's solving a problem or hiring somebody or iterating on a sales contract, whatever the sort of challenge in front of them is. That's not to say that I want to work with people who are steadfast and don't take feedback and don't learn from their mistakes. That's not it at all. The whole point is that they're stubborn and they're curious and that they are learning as they're doing and iterating. Well, this is fascinating. You've given many specific examples of startups, founders, and how they exhibited uh, certain characteristics. I see where the need for stubbornness comes from. It comes from the place of optimism. They definitely learn from feedback. That quality of relentless perseverance, that's what differentiates some of the most successful entrepreneurs compared to others. And that's, I think, what you're alluding to. This, yeah, this is it's, that, very, it's, very it's that relentless pursuit of perfection. I want to come back to your view on the market in general. A lot of things have changed in venture capital over the years. You've been an entrepreneur, you've been a technology executive, you commercialized the internet, you saw a billion people use Facebook as a platform, and you've been actively investing, serving on boards of companies. Through this experience, if you were to change one thing about the venture capital industry, what would you change to make it better? Mm, that's a good question. While I'm thinking about it, where would you start with that, Gopi? I have a lot of things. The topic that comes up most often in my conversations is diversity. I mm -hmm. think uh, the Michael Morris's of the world were great in building the industry, but I think as the leaders of the industry, they have failed in building diversity into the ecosystem. And I would like to change that. It's not only because it's nice to do and we need to give opportunities to other people, but I think it makes business sense. We're ignoring a big chunk of opportunities where we can build profitable businesses, iconic companies for the long term that really has an impact on people's lives. And these can be extremely lucrative for an investment as well. We're not doing that because we're only looking at certain types of patterns and we are used to, we stay with those patterns. We can bring different kinds of entrepreneurs, different kinds of investors into the industry. I think we'll lease much more potential with this technology revolution. Yeah, I agree with you. There's not enough diversity in technology in particular. Venture capital is a small part of that. And I think that to some degree, it starts with the venture side of how companies form and get started in those communities and those networks. One of the things that we did a couple of years ago was we started a little bit of a community action group called VC Open Door because I was tired of the, hey, everyone's looking for a warm intro and a way to meet a VC. And so I asked people, hey, would you just give a Calendly link or some other way of making yourself available for office hours? for people who don't have a warm intro. And now this group's been running for about two years. I think we're closing in on 200 investors who've said, hey, I'm willing to meet people. Here's a link to my calendar and a form to fill out to get time for a meeting. And there have been somewhere on the order of 450 connections made, completely no warm intros, nothing like that. And dollars have actually been committed on the back of those 450 meetings, a couple million dollars. So the numbers are small, but it's a good start. 
from where we were a couple of years ago, where it literally was, here's a form on a website or get a warm intro out to people. One of the biggest challenges there is actually the sort of matchmaking that needs to happen between the founder or founders and who's going to be a good fit for them. Honestly, Gopi, that's where we as partners spend a lot of time with our portfolio companies as they go on to raise whatever the next round of capital is. And we're talking to founders about, hey, it's not just about the venture firm, but it's the partner at the firm. Are they hot on your business market? Are they cool on your business market? Do they have time? Do they not have time? Have they made other recent relevant or adjacent investments? And been a few people who've attempted to categorize all of this data. But one of the challenges of early stage investing is we are often very wrong with the direction that companies take and businesses take. So I might say that one day I'm a cybersecurity investor and then I look back a year or two years later and I realize I'm actually not a cybersecurity investor. I've invested actually in different vertical fintech businesses or something like that because the businesses have sort of pivoted and waxed and waned into that field. And so I think solving that matchmaking problem of, hey, I've got an idea and or built a prototype for it. I'm trying to find people who could then invest in me and help me network and hire and receive capital and all of that. That's a problem I think a lot about solving. And I do think that the incubators and YC in particular has probably done the best job of that given the sort of cohort structure and the openness to which they have made the application process and their own vetting process. You've shared some deeply thoughtful ideas on how to improve venture capital as it exists today. And I see that you're actively involved in building that community. I usually ask my last question about what are you passionate about in community development? I see that with VC Open Door, the mission is to pledge time to support entrepreneurs from underprivileged backgrounds so we can bring more diversity into the ecosystem. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Thank you for sharing your nuggets of wisdom. I look forward to sharing them with the world. My pleasure. Thanks. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.